is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth will give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God and the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought upon the earth. He will make war cease to the ends of the earth. He will break the bow and shatter the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord, oh sorry, <laughs> there's another bit. The Lord, <laughs> the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Great, thanks Neve. Um, I'm just going to, I said to oh well I was going to waffle for a minute so he could find levels. So this is me waffling and carrying my stand to the front. Um, I am, um, morning, that's the place to start. This is such a joy to do this, morning. Um, I prepared a draft of this uh, a few weeks ago after Andy um, graciously asked me to do this because I thought I knew it was a bit of a crazy time. As he said, I've been up at two conferences actually over the last week, one up in Harrogate for about 120 key leaders in the UK, church leaders, and then after that, about 1,500 people um, at the craziest of times, <laughs> the most awesome, amazing of times. Um, and so I prepped before I went there as you do. And then last week, last Monday night, God said, can you just rip that up and listen to me and start again? So um, that's what I'm bringing this morning. I'm just offering um, what I felt God say. No, no, let's be real, shall we, this morning. So that's what I'm doing. Um, and in terms of, I'm going to try really hard not to cough on this. Um, don't worry about the cough. Uh, actually, I'm losing my voice a little because 1,500 people, we've just had an awesome time in worshipping. So I've screamed my lungs out in those kind of songs that Luke has been um, saying. And we have building work at home and there's brick dust galore. So if I cough, don't worry. That's the reason why. If I lose my voice, remind me I've got water behind me. Andy launched us last week into the series that we're doing over Lent, a series on prayer based on this most awesome book by Pete Gregg, How to Pray. With the most, uh, it's the, the wonderful subtitle, I love this, it says, A Simple Guide for Normal People. So officially this morning, Christchurch Felton, we can own the fact that we have been declared normal people because we're doing this series, so let's just, let's take that. The series is based on a short acronym, P-R-A-Y, pray, kind of simple, does what it says. P is for pause, R for rejoice, A for ask, and Y is for yield or yes, to keep it even simpler. And this morning, we're going to pause together. My husband's leading kid church out there, and he said, great, I've got a whole morning in kids church of telling children to pause, be still, and keep quiet. So I think we've got the easy job in here this morning. <clears throat> now, even before Pete Gregg taught us how to pray, Jesus taught us how to pray. Jesus prayed a lot. Have you noticed that? If you read the Gospels, he prayed a lot. He took himself off to specific places. Places. He was really intentional about it. He got up early. He made time for it. He prioritized it. And I have no doubt that as his disciples did life with him and walked alongside him for three years, they noticed that. And they noticed 
this as well, that Jesus' life perfectly demonstrated all the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about when he writes to the Galatians. They no doubt noticed Jesus lived a life full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And they saw Jesus had the ability to cope with demand as his fame as a rabbi began to spread and the demands intensified. They saw that he was able to love, to be generous and joy-filled despite the most relentless of itineraries. And they saw the impact of his ministry, the healings, the deliverances, the miracles. And they made the link between how he lived and how he prayed. So they asked him, Rabbi, teach us how to pray. They said effectively, I want to do what you're doing. And I want to be like your being. So teach me how you pray. So Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. We can read it there in Matthew and Luke. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. It goes on. It's so familiar to us. We know it. Archbishop Justin Welby says that the Lord's Prayer is simple enough for the smallest of child to remember, and yet profound enough to sustain a whole lifetime of prayer. Simple enough to be memorized by a small child. In its original language, it was actually even simpler than the versions that we used to. Graham Tomlin, our own Bishop of Kensington, apparently on a trip to Israel, heard a Syrian Orthodox priest recite the Lord's Prayer in its ancient original Aramaic language, and he realized that it rhymed. I didn't know that. It rhymed. Did you know Jesus wrote us a rhyming poem to teach us how to pray? Greg, talk about simple. <laughs> it's beautiful. But before he taught them like that, Jesus said something else to his disciples, recorded in verse 6 of Matthew 6. He said this, when you pray, go into your room and close the door. He's saying before you start, stop. Before you pray anything, pause. Be still. The pause most often is stillness and silence. But I think some of us might be relieved to hear this morning that it doesn't have to be. Some of us find it really difficult to sit and pray. For some of us, that pause might involve moving, might involve laying on the floor, might involve pacing around as we pray. I have friends that run as they pray. I have to say friends because I don't do that. I don't run. Let alone run and pray. I don't run. Um, but I have, uh, I have friends that I listen to music, to worship music, or go walking in creation and pray. But it may well be stillness. Nee, thank you for finding Psalm 46 and reading that for us. Uh, and in the midst of that psalm, we hear the pause. We hear, be still. Before that, the psalmist writes and we hear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. That psalm was likely written during a time of war. And he writes, nations are in uproar and kingdoms fall. In the Christchurch Feltham 2020 paraphrase from Jules Morgan this morning, it could say, when climate change threatens our very future, when nations are on fire, when floods seem relentless, when famine, famine, slavery, abuse, and wars seem out of control. Yes, when we're on the brink of a potential coronavirus pandemic. And when social, political, and economic foundations are feeling shaky. 
what's true for the psalmist is true for, today, for us today. We're reminded that in all that, God is our shelter, our refuge, and our strength. When troubles seem near and real, do you know what? God is even nearer, and he is ready and able to help. He's our protection. He's our fortress. So we don't need to be fearful of what's going on. But even more than that, when we reach verse 10, something happens. Up until this point, the psalm has been from the third person, God is. And it changes, it shifts to first person. Like all poetry, when form or pattern is broken, it forces the reader to pay attention. Something really important now is about to communicate it, that change says. The point of view, the change says, pay attention because this is the most central bit of the poem, the psalm. And it says this, be still. And know that I am God. Or as the voice translation puts it, it says, be still, be calm. See, know, and understand who I am. I'm the true God. He's saying, be still. But he's not saying, calm down, dear. It's not that sort of, just have a rest, calm down. He's saying, be still and, be still and know me. This is the reason that we need to pause and stop before we pray. When we pause, what we actually do is we connect with the presence of God. Now, we're in God's presence all the time. He tells us he's omni, it's one of the omnis, omnipresent. He's always with us. But as we pause, we become present to that presence. We become aware of who it is that we're actually with. We become aware of who it is that we're actually praying to. And you know what? That changes absolutely everything. If we skip this bit, prayer too easily becomes a shopping list or an empty ritual. Honestly, without the presence of God and relational connection, if you haven't found it yet, I've found it many times, without that, prayer becomes really, really boring and pointless and ineffective. But with this pause, we intentionally pay attention to the one that we're with, and prayer becomes the most amazing thing. It becomes a conversation. It becomes a deep, intimate relationship. I love reading in Exodus about how Moses prayed with God. It talks about how he talked with God face to face as a friend. Don't you want your prayer life to be like that? That's what I want. What I want, talking face to face, that intimate, that relational, that easy I have to say, I love hanging out with my family and my friends. At times, I'm listening to them. At times, I'm just kind of chatting. At times, we're chatting together. Um, at times, I'm just actually chilling out with them, enjoying doing something with them, or just sitting, that easiness of just sitting and being with them, enjoying them, enjoying being known by them, being able to be the real me. Not what I do, not all that stuff, but just, oh, oh you know me as I am, and this is great. Turn to the person next to you, if you will, for a moment. Find somebody, twos, it's got to be in twos, really quickly. And just turn. And uh, make, you're going to need to turn to each other because you're going to need to look in each other's faces. Just find someone, turn next to each other for a moment, and I'm going to ask you to look at one another. That's it, face to face. Got to be in twos, I'm afraid. <laughs> just look at them. 
Now do your very best to maintain eye contact. Don't look away. You can blink if you need to, especially if you've got contact lenses, but look into their eyes. Feels a little bit awkward, I know, but just look into their eyes. Maintain eye contact. Okay. I'm going to ask you to come back because it's going to get a little bit risky otherwise. It's going to get a little risky, particularly if you're sitting next to somebody's husband or wife. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, face to face, if you really look into somebody's eyes, you really look deeply into their eyes, there is a connection. It's a physiological and it's a soul thing. Ooh. I'm going to stop moving. Should I just do this? I'll stop moving. It's a soul thing because we're built for connection. As I said, it gets a bit risky um, if you carry on for too long because behavioural science studies have shown that we're comfortable with that sort of deep face-to-face, -face, deep eye contact for about four or five seconds. A little bit longer than that, and actually, initially, we become uncomfortable because we feel scrutinised. We feel almost emotionally naked and a little bit vulnerable because we're feeling that another intelligent being can see us can scrutinize us, is looking at us. But longer than that, and it gets, gets interesting, we begin to feel a deep emotional connection. There's a whole bunch of studies on this that I won't bore you with. It's an intimate connection. And it's a vital part of how people fall in love. That parent-child connection. You know that thing of couples gazing into each other's eyes for a long time? It's, it's a vital part of how people fall in love. And the pause before we pray is just about that. It's about intentionally seeking the manifest presence of God. Moses and God, face to face, connection. Moses was known by God as he experienced his presence. They became intimately connected. And I have no doubt that at times that gaze of God made him feel vulnerable, seen, no doubt ashamed and wanting to hide from God, no doubt convicted and brought back into that loving connection. But that manifest face, that present-to-present -present connection with God, also allowed Moses to know what God was really like. In one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, in Exodus 3, we hear about God calling out to Moses from a burning bush. Mind-blowing. At that point, there is absolutely no relationship between the two of them. Moses doesn't even know God. But God chooses to reveal himself to Moses. And he tells Moses that he's his father's, father's, father's God. And he says, I've seen the slavery of my people and their misery, and I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to use you. And Moses and God kind of get into a very long conversation about that. And Moses basically says, look, okay, if I'm going to go to the people of Israel and say, um, tell them that the God of their father's, father's, father has sent me to rescue them. And they reply, well, what is his name? What should I tell them? Now, Moses actually uses the words, Mashemo. He's not saying, what's their name, like Jules. He's saying, what's the meaning of your name? Identity and name is so tied up in Scripture. He's saying, what are you like? He's asking, what makes you, you? And God replies, Yahweh. It's the first time you heard the name of God. God replies, Yahweh. And that means, I am who I am. Or in another way to translate that Hebrew, whatever I am, I will be. Meaning whatever God is like, his identity, his character, he is always, always like that. 
Later on, you know, one of those frustrating moments, he doesn't fully answer Moses' question, but later on in Exodus 33, we get the fullness of the answer when he reveals his whole identity in his name. Yahweh, I am who I am. Yahweh came down and he was present to Moses. Not the full glory of his presence. Moses had asked for that, but he says, you know what, if I give you my whole glory, you'll die. It's too much, too much for the human body. But I'll pass by and you'll see some of my presence and my glory. And he says this, Yahweh, who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That is what God is like all the time. In Psalm 46, that's what God is saying to his people in that midst of trouble. It's what he's saying to us this morning. Be still and know that that's what I'm like. Be still and know I am God. Be still, be calm, experience me. And then you'll understand that there's no need to fear. No matter what's happening around you, know me. I'm the God that's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That is who is with you in the midst of this. But the relationship isn't just about knowing God and being known by God, it's also about influencing the world. And it's also about influencing God. Yes, I did just say that. This is where it gets really good. Andy read something last week by Duncan Campbell, one of the leaders during the revival in the Hebrides, and he circulated it via email. I don't know if you had a chance to read that full uh, transcript, but I want to go back and read something from it. This is from Duncan Campbell. He writes, I think one of the most outstanding things that happened, I believe, will go down in history, as long as revival is mentioned, was in the parish of Arnott. Now, I regret to say that they, here I was bitterly opposed by a certain section of the Christian church. He goes on and writes and explains that a little bit more. And he says, they were so successful in their opposition that very few people from this particular community came to any of my meetings. So one night, one of the elders came and said to me, Mr. Campbell, there is only one thing we can do. We must give ourselves to prayer because prayer changes things. And he goes on to explain how I did it. And he says, I'd say there are about 30 of us, including five ministers, men who had burdens, longings to see God move in revival. And we were praying and the going was really hard. At least I felt it was hard. It came to between 12 and 1 o'clock in the morning, and I turned again to this blacksmith, and I said to him, John, I feel that God would have me to call upon you to pray. Up until then, he'd been silent, and that dear man began, and he must have prayed for about half an hour, Campbell writes. When he paused for a second or so and looked up towards the heavens, John Smith, the blacksmith, cried this, God, do you know that your honor is at stake you promised to pour water on the thirsty ground and floods on the dry ground, and God, you're not doing it. Campbell writes, now my dear people, who could pray like that? But here was a man who could. Here was a man who could pray like that to God. John Smith goes on to pray, I think I can say that I think you know that I'm thirsty, God. I am thirsty to see the devil defeated in this parish. I am thirsty to see this community gripped. I am longing for revival, Smith prays. And God, you're not doing it. I'm thirsty and you promised to pour water on me. 
Then he paused. And then he cried, God. And he stood up. I now take it on myself to challenge you to fulfill your covenant engagement. What happened? The house shook. Amble writing. A jug on a sideboard fell onto the floor and water broke. No, the jug broke and water flowed out. And Campbell says, my mind went back to Acts chapter 4, when they prayed and the place was shaken. When John Smith stopped praying, at 20 minutes past two in the morning, I pronounced the benediction and left the house. What did I see? The whole community was alive at two o'clock in the morning. Men carrying their chairs, women carrying stools and asking, is there room for us in the church? Can we get in as well? And the on revival broke out. What a sweeping revival. I don't believe there was a single house in the village that wasn't shaken by God. God, do you know that your honour is at stake? John Smith prayed. And God acts and revival breaks out. John Smith challenges God. He influences God. Because he knows him and he knows his character so well. He spent so much time pausing, being in his presence. Duncan Campbell said, now my dear people, who could pray like that? But he was a man who could. At one point in the Exodus story, not long after Yahweh, I am who I am, has rescued his people out of slavery. He's provided them with his presence and food and water, extravagant love. He's demonstrated it to them. And Israel goes completely off the rails and starts worshipping another god. And the god who is slow to anger finally gets a bit fed up and angry with them. And he says to Moses, I'm going to destroy Israel. I'm going to reboot the whole thing and start again with you, Moses. God's clearly upset. Don't blame him. And God and Moses get into one of their intimate conversations about it. And this is astounding. Moses talks God out of it. Moses tells him, God, if you do this, then all the other nations are going to trash your name. You made a promise to lead your people through the desert. Egypt's watching. And your name, God, is at stake here. And God changes his mind, and he has mercy on his people. John Smith prayed, your honor is at stake, God, and God has mercy on his people. I don't know about you, but I don't interact with that, like that with God yet. Not enough. One, two, not enough. But you know what we can? This is why pause is such an essential part of prayer. And what Jesus is about to teach his disciples next is so mind-blowing that he knows there's going to be battleground over it. He's saying to you as much as them, you're going to need to battle for this. You're going to need to fight for this. You're going to need to contend for this. It's so important. And here's how you do it. When you pray, go into your room and close the door. He's saying there are going to be external things that will try and pull you away from this. They're going to try and distract you from focusing deeply on the presence of God, on who you're praying to. So fight back and do not let those distractions take you away from the real power of prayer, the encounter with God, the relationship. Let's be honest, it's not easy, is it? <laughs> information scientists have quantified that we now take in seven times more information a day than we did back in 1986. We are bombarded all of the time. Don't even get me started on gaming and iPhones. We are bombarded all the time. We multitask all the time to cope. But there's actually no such thing as multitasking. We can't give enough conscious attention to more than one thing simultaneously. What we're actually really good is termed 
but this rapid task switching, there you go, it's rapid task switching that we do. And many of us have got really good at it. Say we've probably gotten too good at it. You know what I mean? Checking your Twitter feed actually requires you to slightly zone out from the conversation that your mate's having with you, but you zone out enough so that you can pay enough attention to switch back in when you really need to have that moment where they think you've been listening to them, when you've been scrolling down seeing how many likes you've got. Only me? <laughs> Maybe it is only me that half listens to my mother-in-law when she's talking about her neighbor's friend's daughter's dog. Honestly, that happens. And she asks me a question. I'm thinking, oh, I was zoning enough now so that hopefully I've said yes in the right place and it shouldn't have been a no. Um, the bandwidth for our brain actually is only enough, if you want to think of it as a bandwidth, it's only enough to do one thing at a time really well in depth. But we've become so good at this rapid task switching that we do everything at surface level and we're finding it really hard to focus. We are a distracted people. So we're going to need to fight for this pause. Push away the distractions. That's why Jesus says, close the doors if you need to. Be intentional, be disciplined. It won't just be the external either. As we seek the personal encounter of God and the manifest presence of relationship with him, there's going to be an internal battle of our own distraction. Did I do the Tesco shop? Did I reply to that email? Our thoughts are going to fly around. We've got to keep catching ourselves and refocusing on the presence of God. I've been using the Lectio 365 daily prayer app. Um, and each day it starts with this. As I enter prayer now, I pause to be still to breathe slowly, to recenter my scattered senses upon the presence of God. I love that. To recenter my scattered senses on the presence of God. To get to that place of encounter before I even utter a word in prayer. And after Jesus says, you must pause, you must pause, he then says, pray for your father. Jesus came and lived and died and rose from the grave to make the kind of relationship that Moses had with Yahweh available to us. But even more than that, he took the possibility of intimate friendship with God an even further step forward. And he taught us to call God Father, the most intimate relational name. Jesus' death and resurrection gives you and I the status of sons and daughters before God. We have the same access to God that Jesus did. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you come before God in Jesus' name. You invoke that same status with God. You come as co-heirs with Christ. We come as co-heirs with Christ. We come as a royal daughter or son of the Father. And that can and should completely transform the way that we pray. When Jesus began to build his church, which we're part of, he said, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's giving us authority in prayer. We can use it. Anointed and empowered with the Holy Spirit, we should see the same impact in our society that Jesus had. Healings, deliverances, revival. The British Isles of Council of Prophets released a prophetic word recently on the 1st of February. And it talks about 2020 being a hinge or a pivot year. There's loads in it, I can't read it out. Let me know if you want it, I'll circulate it around. But it talks about there is a revival coming to the UK and to Europe. It says that communities before them will move from occasional days of prayer to daily prayer and worship, and revival will break out. There'll be Holy Spirit fire and anointing that will ignite a new awe for God on people that 
don't even have a relationship with him yet. It will produce a vast and sudden harvest of souls, multitudes in a moment like we heard in the Hebridean revival. What will be birthed is a move of God that will be marked by a humility-driven missional movement with signs and wonders and miracles. I don't know about you, but please, God, your name is at stake in our nation. Don't you want that? As we come into land now, I'm going to show you. I know I've gone slightly over, but I'm going to show you a short clip from John and Carol Arnott. The clip explains who they are, and then we're going to come into land, and I'll pray for us briefly after that. goes on for a little while. Uh, 12 years, 12 years they stewarded that move of God and he goes on to talk about some of the fruit, the numerous nations, the fruit of what that did and they still don't to this day really understand or they don't know the fullness of the fruit. I've shown that because um, I was with them last week, I had the privilege to spend a little bit of time with them and over that week um, in our conference up in Harrogate I watched them call down the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they called it, they prayed fire, fire of heaven fall and they prayed for people. They and others close to them see healings, deliverances, miracles. One of them, friend, actually, and I've got to know Nicola. She randomly started to go down a rabbit hole. Of, you know, we've had our second healing from the raising from the dead in Uganda. I know these people; they're not making it up. <laughs> I know Nicola. She's got the death certificates. Manifestations of the presence of God, but actually, the fruit of what's happening is real. And um, I did a really good job of avoiding them, John and Carolina, um, for the first few hours. I was working at the leadership conference and we all kind of wear uniforms that have new wine on it. So it's obvious that we're working. And I thought, to be honest, since I was working out, it's probably a good idea to stay upright. Um, so I avoided them. And honestly, I, I worried about what people would think. I worried about if I was wearing a new wine uniform, T-shirt, and went forward for prayer, what would people think? And I was worried about what the team would think if I got prayed for and did something strange. Because there were people that were falling over and laughing and rolling around. The presence of God... Sometimes our human bodies just react to it. It was very, very tangible, and I thought, I'm a bit worried about what people think. But then, like the disciples, I, I saw what was happening, and like the disciples saw Jesus, I thought, I want what you've got, because you are seeing miracles and revivals and healings and people being raised from the dead. I want that. I wanted to be able to do what they were doing and to see revival break out in the UK. I, I don't say that lightly. It, I long for it. I pray for it. I want to see it happen. Um... And then more than that, I thought, actually, do you know what? Even, even more than that, I want that encounter with God. I want that personal connection with God. So they ended up, I ended up not avoiding them as much. And they prayed, either John or Carol prayed for me four times around different points in that week. And to be honest, I'm not quite sure what I did. One, one of the team on Tuesday morning greeted me, was saying, oh, I hear you were flopping around on the floor like a fish last night, Jules. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> um, but what I do know is I fell over. But what I do know is wave after wave of the presence of the love of God. And I heard God go, just again and again, daughter, I love you. Daughter, I love you. Daughter, I love you. Try to have conversations about other things. Daughter, I love you. Daughter, I love you. So I'm still processing that. I don't know what the fruit that's going to be. But do you know what it's done? It's, it's highlighted two things for me that I wanted to end with now. One is that John and Carol Arnott, as I've stewarded that, they take their status as sons and daughters of God very, very seriously, and they step into it, and they pray with that authority and that anointing. They spend hours pausing. They spend hours in the presence of God. I know that because I ask Carol. Hours every day. I know we can't all do that, but that's how they've managed to work their anointing. They actually do it in obedience. They prioritize and contend and fight for the presence of God in their prayer life. 
And the second thing that I learned is I had such a powerful encounter with God Father's love and with the Holy Spirit that honestly, it's completely ruined me for settling for anything else in my prayer life. That personal encounter with God is all I want now. And sometimes our pause isn't just to get to the good stuff. Sometimes our pause actually becomes our prayer. Just being with God, no words, just encountering his presence, being fully present, intimately connected with him. Can I ask Luke to come back up? We're going to get a chance just to do that. Can I ask you to stand to your feet? I'm just going to pray for us and then hand back to Andy.